Father, we pray over the rest of this worship service. Lord, everything we do this morning, we want to be pleasing in your sight. We want it to bring you glory and honor. So we pray that the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, would bring you glory. And now as we come to your word, we pray that you'd be glorified through this as well. And we pray that you would speak to us, Father. This is why we come to your word each week, is to hear you speak to us, because we know that what you have to say is true, and that in your words is eternal life. So, Father, speak. And remove anything that may hinder us from hearing you speak, any fears or anxieties or distractions or to-do lists. Lord, remove them from us so that we can hear you clearly and powerfully this morning. Pray that you open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, the one thing that isn't changing is that we are still going through the book of Ecclesiastes. So, if you open your Bibles, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 16. And it's a pretty long passage because we're going all the way through to the end of chapter 4. So we're going through chapter 4, verse 16 as well. So Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through the end of chapter 4. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see what they are like, that they are like, the hum- like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For what am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. 
If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the one of the common things I hear as I talk to people about Christianity, about the Bible, is that it's just not relevant. Just doesn't speak to what's actually going on these days. And, and actually, um, when I was away on my continuing Ed week, I was looking at some statistics from the city of Beaver Dam, and it said that. of the people who don't have a church in Beaver Dam say they don't go to church because it's just not relevant to their life. And I don't want to be mean or blunt. Well, I do mean to be blunt, but not mean. Um, If you don't think the Bible is relevant, you have not read the Bible. Um, Every page of the Bible is relevant. And I mean, just, just look at this morning's passage, right? This book. I mean, this isn't scientific, but about 3,000 years ago, this book was written. And he says, I saw something else under the sun. This is in verse 16. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. That doesn't sound relevant to anything going on right now, does it? (laughs) Right? Nobody's talking about all the injustice going on in our country. Nobody's talking about there being wickedness where there should be. No, there's a lot of conversations about that, right? You go on and you look at the beginning of chapter 4 and he says, look, I looked around and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They had no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they had no comforter. And I declared that the dead who has already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has never seen evil that's done under the sun. There's a lot of talk going on right now in our country about people being oppressed, right? Talking about groups of people whose voices aren't being heard. We're seeing suicide rates go up. Because people are thinking that it's happier to be dead than alive. And have you, haven't you ever heard somebody say, I don't want to have kids because I can't imagine bringing up kids in such an evil world. Basically saying it's better not to be born than to live. And 3,000 years ago, <laughs> they were writing, so he said, I've seen the same things going on. I'm looking around at my culture, same things are going on. And, and what amplifies all of this is that the author says it's all happening under the sun. And remember, when he says, I see things happening under the sun, he's saying, this is, I'm looking at things through a worldview without God. 
There is no God. There's nothing above, nothing below, just this on this earth, just under the sun. And I look out and I see that there's injustice and there's wickedness and there's oppression, but there's no God. And that just makes everything, it amplifies everything. I mean, think, how scary is it if there's no God and yet you recognize that there's corruption in the places of judgment and there's no God to do anything about it? People begin to see that, that there's, there's corruption in the court systems and the justice systems and the government and all the highest places of authority. There's, there's corruption there and then there's no God to do anything about it. It's a pretty bleak picture. Or how scary is it to recognize that there are people who have been oppressed and there's no God to hear their cry for comfort. No God to listen to them. They are the lowest of the low. No one cares. No one hears. And without God in the picture, the only people who can do anything about it are the people in the government, the judicial systems. And guess what? All there is is corruption. There's no hope. Which is why people begin to think it's better to be dead than not to be born at all. It's what we're seeing sweep across our country right now. It's, it really is the exact worldview and the consequences of it. People are looking around and seeing all of the places of judgment and power and saying, there's corruption there. there there's, there's oppression. There, there is injustice. There's corruption in all these places, but there's no God to do anything about it. So what do you do? You either melt into despair or you rise up in rebellion. I've been hearing in the midst of all of the rioting going on, I've heard people, I don't remember who they're quoting, but they're quoting someone who says that rioting is the voice of the unheard. Some people say that wanting to justify it. We can't justify it. But it's still true. If, 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 there's, if the only people who can solve your problems are all corrupt, and if there's no God, you either melt into despair or you rise up in rebellion to try to make things right on your own. If there's no God, there's only power and force. And the only way you can get power and force as an unheard group is to get a whole bunch of people together and cause chaos. And so our cities burn because there's no God in their mind. But the reality is there is a God that changes everything. It it really does change everything. The, The author says in verse 17, he says, God will bring judgment, both the righteous, bring into judgment, both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Since there is a God who created everything, and since there is a God who's ruling and reigning over everything, we can be confident that He will bring everything into judgment. And He says, even He'll bring both the righteous and the wicked to judgment. You'll stand before the judgment throne. Every single person that has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of God. That means you will stand before the judgment seat of God. That means I will stand before the judgment seat of God. 
And it means that every politician, every judge, every police officer, and every rioter in the streets will stand before the judgment seat of God. And scripture says, it's mine to avenge, says the Lord. I will repay. And again, this is in Hebrews 10. The Lord will judge his people. And it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because there is a God, there is someone higher than the most, the most powerful authorities of the land. We don't have to take things into our own hands, but we can trust that God will bring justice. But he also, the author of Ecclesiastes tells us something I think is really, is something that struck me this week and I've been meditating on for a long time. He says, in the midst of his current chaos, and I would say in the midst of our current chaos, God is teaching us something. He he wants us to learn something in the midst of this. And we see injustice and oppression and rioting. He says, verses 18 through 20, I also said to myself, as for humans... God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. And here's what he's saying. In the midst of his current chaos, and I would say in the midst of our current chaos, God is teaching us that we are not God. We're not God. We are finite beings and we're going to die one day. Yeah, God has created us and put us human beings as the pinnacle of creation. But we're still going to die and our bodies are going to decompose and we're going to turn into dust. We're not God. That also means that our politicians and our judges and our police officers and the rioting, the rioters are not God either. And so we look across our country and we see unjust laws and we see unjust policies coming from our politicians and coming from our judges. God is reminding us that we are not God, that they are not God and they cannot fix the problem. We see unjust police shootings and killings. God's reminding us that the police are not God. They cannot fix the problem. We see rioting in the streets and killing and injuring and burning down businesses of innocent people. God is reminding us that they are not God either and they cannot fix the problem. We're not God. We can't fix the problem because... We are the problem. There's this, this great line um, back, I don't remember when it was, G.K. Chesterton was a really uh, famous Christian writer, and over in England, the newspaper wanted people to write articles about answering the question, what is the problem, what is wrong with the world? And he wrote back two words for his response, I am. We're not the solution. We're not... God. And, and, it, and it doesn't matter if we want to try to kick God out of his throne and try to put ourselves there. We're not God and we can't fix the problem because we're finite. We're dust and we're going to die. We're going to stand before his judgment seat 
and our bodies are going to turn to dust. And some people might say, but okay, I get that. But but what if we what if we just work really hard? If we just work really hard, maybe we'll be able to fix everything. And the author says, no, look at verse chapter four, verse four. I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. That too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. It says you could try to work really hard to try to fix all these problems, and yet, apart from God, it all flows from envy. And we see it. We can, we can take a moment, just take a moment and look around at what's going on around us. We constantly see, you know, the phrase, people don't say it much anymore, but keeping up with the Joneses, it's all envy. We see people just trying to climb the ladder of success. They don't care who they step on. They just want to get higher. Why? Because it's all about envy. And envy is all about caring about myself over anyone else. I don't care about you and your success. Your success just means I have to succeed more so that I can be better than you. And so I can't rejoice in that. I, I, I care more about myself than anyone else. That's what envy is doing. And so envious hard work isn't going to solve the problem, is it? And he gives us this, this story, kind of a, a parable in verses 7 through 8 of what envious hard work looks like. He says again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. He worked hard, climbed the ladder of success, made a lot of money, Brought himself up in his business. Yet when he got there, he looked and realized no one was there with him. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his co-workers. Because it was all envy. He got rid of anything that would keep him from reaching the top. But he never really felt like he arrived at the top. And he never really felt like he had enough. He was never satisfied. He was so busy chasing after wealth that he never stopped to ask What am I working for? Or why am I neglecting my family for this job? Or why am I making myself miserable in the pursuit of happiness? The reality is envious hard work is the reason why we have injustice, oppression, and wickedness in the world. It's people living and working out of envy, caring more about themselves than anyone else out in the world. And so they... they, they, there's injustice, there's wickedness, there's oppression. So it's not going to solve the problem. It'll actually only make it worse. Well, what if we get the right leader? Like, right? All the political ads say, we just got to elect the right president. He's going to fix it. Trump's going to fix it. Biden's going to fix it. I mean, they're all going to fix it. They know what's going down. And they're going to solve the problem. They, they, they know the people and they're there for the people. They understand what you want. And, and, and it'd even be better if we had this politician that maybe was oppressed at one point in time and kind of pulled themselves out of oppression and, and he would understand us and he would lead us. And then we see another parable at the end of this passage. 
chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who, knows, who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. The right president's not going to fix our problems. The right leader is not going to fix our problem. I mean, this, this youth, he has the, like, the American dream story, kind of the rags to riches, right? He, he was a victim of oppression and injustice, and he was thrown in jail, but then he rises up out of all of that and becomes king of the land, and everyone followed him. Everyone thought he was great. And then he died. Because he's finite. He's not God. And everyone went off doing what they did before he was there. He says it's meaningless. He didn't fix it. He didn't fix anything. And neither will our next president or our current president. Without God, there is no hope for change. Without God, there is no hope for justice. There is no hope for reformation. There is no hope period, apart from God. Because God is the only one who can truly bring justice, who can truly bring hope, and can truly bring reformation, because God is the only one who can change hearts. That's it. So how do we live then? Does that mean, well, God's the only one who can do this, so I'll just sit back and chill and let God do it? No. The whole theme of this book is the importance of working hard and and enjoying our work. And he actually says in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So the answer isn't, let's just sit back and and watch God do it. I'm going to fold my hands. He says, you do that. You sit back in laziness. Um, You're going to destroy yourself and you're going to destroy those around you. So that's not the answer either. And then he gives us an answer, but it, it kind of seems almost out of the blue a little bit. He says, we look around at a world of injustice and wickedness and oppression. He says, we need to learn how to work together. Uh, look at chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Kind of a famous one for at weddings, quite often. And I sat, I took a while to think about that, but but here's why that's really important, us learning how to, to work together in the midst of all of this. Think about what we've been talking about throughout the message already. Injustice, oppression, wickedness, envy, laziness. What's the common thread running through all of that? Selfishness. Self-centeredness. I mean, why is there injustice and oppression in the world? Because people care more about themselves than anyone else. 
Why do people enviously work or why are people lazy? Because they're more concerned about themselves than anyone else. And so the author's telling us we, we need to be able to work with one another because when we work with one another, guess what we're forced to do? We're forced to stop looking at ourselves and start looking at other people and start maybe considering them as more significant than ourselves, as Scripture tells us. It reminds us that we were never created to try to go at this alone, try to do this all on our own, try to build ourselves up on our own. I can do this all myself. That we were never designed that way. And when we try to do it all on our own, apart from anybody else, we end up running off the rails and we end up finding ourselves doing injustice, oppression, wickedness, envy, laziness, any of those when we try to do it on our own. So he says we need to work with other people because that forces us to look beyond ourselves for a bit. But then he also tells us we need to enjoy our work again. He says it like every chapter at least once. Enjoy the work that you're doing in the world. Even though the world is full of injustice and wickedness and oppression, go out into the world, do the task that God has given you to do and do it with joy. Chapter 3, verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better than better for a person than to enjoy their work. And like I've mentioned before, and like you'll hear me keep mentioning throughout this book, when we enjoy our work, when we enjoy the task that God has given us on this world, we're actually fighting against sin. When we truly enjoy the work that God has given us, it, it fights against injustice, oppression, and wickedness. Because when we, when we truly enjoy our work, when we rightly enjoy our work, it, it does two things. First, first, when we enjoy our work, we don't try to use our work to accomplish something else through it. We're just doing the work that God has given us, right? If you think about the person working out of envy, do they really enjoy their job? No, they enjoy being better than the other person. So the work becomes just a tool to make them better than someone else. And so they don't enjoy their work. But if you enjoy your work, who cares if somebody else is doing better than you or doing something different? I enjoy what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. And so it, it pushes back against injustice and wickedness and oppression. But what it also does is when we rightly enjoy our work, we enjoy our work because this is the work that... God has given us in this world. And when we recognize that we're doing this work and God is our boss and we look to him as we go to do our job every day, then we look to please him. And we can't please God through unrighteousness, through wickedness, through injustice, through oppression. We don't please God by working in that way. And so when we really, truly enjoy the work that God has given us, we push back against injustice and oppression and wickedness and, and sin and laziness and envy. And all of this, all this in the end points us to Christ. Because we can't truly work together apart from Christ. Because we can't truly consider anyone more significant than ourselves apart from Christ. Christ is the one who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Christ is the one that works in our hearts so that we can actually look at someone else and consider them more significant than ourselves. It's the only way we can work together. You also can't enjoy your work apart from Christ. 
Because apart from Christ, you're always going to be striving, trying to measure up, trying to make a name for yourself. But in Christ, he said, I've paid the debt. You don't have to try to measure up anymore. You don't have to strive. Just rest. Do the work I've called you. Enjoy the work I've called you to do in the world. So apart from Christ, you can't enjoy your work. But in Christ, you can actually enjoy the work that he's called you to do. And when we look to Christ, most importantly, we're reminded that we are not God. When we look to Christ, we're reminded that we are sinners and we need a Savior. And we need a Savior because every time we've tried to fix things on our own, we make a bigger mess. And Christ reminds us that that we are a fallen people and our government and the judicial system and the police force and rioting. None of that will fix this because they're all sinners, too. Christ is the only one who can fix this. Working in people's hearts, changing people's hearts, pulling them to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And one day, one day, every single person who has ever stepped foot on this earth will stand before Christ and will be judged. And one day, Christ will return. And when he returns, he's going to bring true righteousness and true justice to this earth. Because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we live each day looking to Christ, trusting Him, and then preaching Him to the world as the only Savior in our broken world. Let's come to God in prayer. Oh, Father, we come to You first off asking forgiveness. Our temptation, Father, is to think that we are a bigger deal than we are. Our temptation is to constantly try to put ourselves in your place, on your throne. Our temptation is to try to put politicians, judges, police officers, our own strength and power on your throne. So we ask your forgiveness. Father, remind us that you are God and we are not. Father, then send us out into the world to live in that way so that people would see our lives and see that we do not think we're the solution, but we live as though you are the solution to the problems in this world. Father, open our lips to speak the gospel so that you can change hearts and draw people to yourself. Father, we look to you in this time of chaos in our country. And we pray that you would do a work in people's hearts. That you wouldn't turn us over into judgment, that you'd bring revival in our country, turning people back to you. Father, we know you can do it, and we trust you. And we rest in you as we go forward. Help us to be faithful to you and to be your faithful people in this world. Help us learn to work together. Help us to enjoy the work that you've given us. 
and help us to rest in you as we live each day. And all God's people said, Amen.